Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Hello and welcome everyone to the Off the Bench podcast. Winter is quickly coming up uh, and as someone residing in Minnesota, I'm never really ready for the promise of sub-zero temperatures. Um, I don't know about you guys. Um, with me today, I have two other Minnesota residents, uh, Tori Nemitz and Dean Derhog. Uh, do either of you identify as uh, winter being your favorite time of year? Yeah. You know, I liked it a lot more when I was younger. The older I get, the harder it gets to uh, tough it out. Um, you know, I'm not moving anywhere warmer anytime soon, so I think I'll just deal with it for now. <laughs> I actually tried to move last year, but then I got this awesome point of care position, so now I'm in Minnesota still. Now we're just dealing with the snow plowing and uh, feeling like your nose and brain is frozen from the inside. Um, I'm sure, though, uh, for those living in our warmer states like, you know, Florida or Hawaii, uh, they'll be enjoying their uh, upcoming few months. Uh, so it definitely depends on where you are. Uh, shout out to all the winter lovers uh, locally and internationally listening to our podcast. Um, my name is Galena. I'll be your host for this episode, and our two guests are uh, specialists in the field of point-of-care testing um, to get technicality out of the way. Point-of-care, uh, simply put, is a diagnostic testing uh, that's performed close to the patient, often by clinical personnel outside of the laboratory which allows us to deliver results to patients at the time of care. Um, these tests are, were regulated by, are regulated by CLIA, so that's Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendment of 1988. And you know, the reason I wanted to have you guys on here is because when I was in school for medical laboratory sciences, we did learn about point-of-care testing, but I don't think I was aware that there were leadership roles in the laboratory that could specialize on the topic. So for those of you who are out there that are students or just starting out in their clinical laboratory careers, listen up. Um, there are more paths to advanced leadership roles than you may have anticipated. Uh, to get us started, Dean, tell us a little bit about your role and how you got here from the days of you know, just starting out as a laboratorian. Well, first off, thank you very much for having me, Galena. Um, like so many people, I started out as a generalist. Um, uh, on night shift, in fact, for a large healthcare institution based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I spent my first three and a half years as a generalist working on night shift, really getting to know all aspects of the, the core lab, if you will. Uh, a little bit later on in my career, I um, transitioned into blood banking and transfusion services, which was uh, a great experience. And just by happenstance, um, a day shift position opened up for a point of care lead. I had been in uh, the lab long enough to know um, that I wanted to keep pursuing the technical side of lab testing. And so I applied for that position. Also the fact that it was on uh, days was uh, very appealing at the time. Um, and lo and behold, I got that position and uh, you know, spent the next few years working in point of care as a lead. Uh, four years ago, um, 
a position opened up at Alina Health for a point of care technical specialist. And I applied for that position just to, uh, you know, brush up on my interviewing skills. And, you know, the panel liked what they saw. And I've been working with Alina Health ever since as their point of care technical advisor. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm very lucky to have you. And then Tori, what about you? What's your journey to where you are and what your role is right now? Um, very similar to Dean. I was a generalist on the night shift for four years. Um, there were two lead positions open. There was a chem lead and a point of care lead. And I desperately wanted the chemistry lead and it was a full-time day shift position. Um, and it really looked like I was going to get the position for a while. And then, you know, surprises happen. I didn't get it. And I, um, was told, you know, if you still want to grow, if you still want to build the skills to become, you know, an in the lab lead, there's this point of care lead position, it's going to help with your relationship skills. Um, and at the time, no one wanted that position. It was the redheaded stepchild um, position. And I really didn't think it was going to be something special. But honestly, my growth in the last year as this point of care lead has been exponential. Mm -hmm my leadership opportunities in the last year have just, there's just too many. I can't jump on all of the trains I want to. And I just really think point of care needs more attention because it is the best job, honestly. Well, that's why we're here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you for that background. It's, you know, a little preview for our conversation. Would you guys say that it is uh, one of the most extroverted or required positions in the laboratory? 100%, yes. <laughs> yes. So we'll get into the details of that day-to-day -day, um, a little bit later on, but a couple things. I think we need to uh, lay a little groundwork um, for our conversation because it's important to cover another definition for our audience, and that is to explain between the difference between waived and non-waived testing, as you'll see come later in conversation. So uh, maybe, Dean, if you could give a broad overview of the difference between waived versus non-waived. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in its most simplistic form, a, a wave test is a test that in theory should be um, so easy to perform um, that you don't need a specialized degree or training to be able to perform that testing. And the risk of complication and patient harm is very minimum. <laughs> Um, you know, that's not always the case for wave testing, but by and large, that is kind of um, the nature of wave testing. Non-wave testing, um, and mind you, this is all determined by the Food and Drug Administration and their classification of tests, um, can further be broken into moderate complex and highly complex testing. We don't really need to get too far um, into the weeds on those two um, classifications of testing, but by and large, those tests do require very specialized training. A lot of those tests um, have the potential to adversely affect patient care if they're not performed with adequate training and competent employees. Thank you for that background. What uh, Do you have a quick example for our audience of what a waived and a non-waived test is? Um, either in lab or, um, you know, a, a patient that might be using one at home? What's, what's an example of one or the other? 
Sure, um, and I can even provide maybe a few. So a few wave tests that um, are commonly associated with point of care testing, uh, probably the most common is the blood glucose check um, for which at Alina Health, we perform more than 1.2 million of those tests a year. Um, some other common wave testing that you might encounter in the hospital might include things like pregnancy testing or um, maybe a urine dipstick test. Highly complex or non-wave tests, even moderately complex tests might include things like a complete uh, metabolic panel, uh, in blood banking, something like antibody identification would be um, classified as a non-wave test. Awesome. Next, the reason we wanted to define these is because I wanted to start out with doing a, a quick or rapid fire question round about um, point of care and continue to help um, our listeners define point of care. Um, so these are kind of yes, no, I have a couple questions for you. So if both of you can um, shout out yes or no, or not at all. And then afterwards, if you guys have anything that you want to expand on regarding those questions, um, we can go ahead and do that. So starting question number one, does point of care equal waived testing? No. Sometimes. <laughs> okay. Next, does point of care equal low complexity testing? Not always. No. Does point of care equal cheaper cost per test than a centralized lab test? No. no. <laughs> and then finally, does point of care equal better quality results for the patient? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes. Okay. Depends on your, your version of quality. Okay. Um, with those, is there anything particular that, uh, you know, my question may have missed or an intricacy that you would like to expand on? Sure. Two, two things specifically. Um, and maybe I'm drinking the Kool-Aid that some of my sales reps have been feeding me, but I generally agree on this point. Um, first being the cost of point of care testing. At face value on a test per test basis or a cost per test basis, almost always a point of care test is going to be more expensive. But if you look at the entire continuum of care for the patient, it could be argued in some cases that while on a test per test basis, it's more expensive, it may be less of expensive for the patient over their entire stay at the hospital clinic or through their entire continuum of care. The second thing I wanted to cover um, would be the fact that point-of-care testing um, can be a better test than a central lab method. It might not always be more accurate or more sensitive, but for tests that require rapid turnaround time and when treating that patient needs to happen in the here and now, and it can't wait for a 30 to one, one and a hour, or sorry, one and a half hour turnaround time, um, you know, those tests can provide a substantial benefit for the patient. Yeah, I guess what I was going to say about that question was that the quality of the result itself maybe may not be as accurate, but quality of the care is going to be more accurate. 
Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to getting into some real life examples of um, the the wins that point of care does provide. So um, again, thank you for that background. Um, and now that we kind of understand uh, point of care testing and the realm and the scope of it, um, I want to get into the stuff that you probably might be a little harder to find on the internet if you're just searching for it. Um, and that's about what you guys do, what your role is, um, what a typical day and life is for you. And I know that that um, question is really broad to kind of narrow down. So maybe to lead into it a little bit, um, I want to understand in your role, are you responsible for point of care tests um, in the laboratory um, or and or outside and other care teams? And also, are you responsible for inpatient and outpatient settings? Um, so kind of what's the scope of your role? Well, I can start this one out and let Tori maybe describe a little bit later on her experience within the hospital setting. Um, as the point of care technical advisor for Alina, um, I don't, of course, do this alone. I do it with the assistance and expertise of all of my colleagues, but we keep the wheels on the point of care bus rolling for greater than 70 clinics and 13 hospital locations. Um, and so we cover a vast landscape of testing. Um, most of it does happen outside of the lab. And um, I guess something to note, and as you touched on earlier, point of care testing is really testing that happens at the patient or near the patient's bedside. Um, so that is the formal definition of point of care testing. That being said, as point of care um, coordinators and point of care technical advisors, uh, you know, we are experts in that point of care testing technology. And sometimes that technology does find utility in the lab. And so oftentimes those lines aren't always black and white. And, uh, you know, our expertise, expertise does uh, come in handy and uh, spills over into the lab atmosphere as well. Typical day, uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> in, in point of care, there is no typical, there is no uh, normal day. Um, my tasks are, are various and my schedule is very fluid, um, which is something I really like about point of care testing. Every day is, is completely different and it never gets boring. Um, I, I think a somewhat normal day for me as a point of care technical advisor, uh, first and foremost, really is trying to tackle my inbox, uh, evaluate all of the, the problems, the equipment issues, the result issues that are being reported from those uh, various sites I mentioned earlier, um, addressing which ones are incredibly high priority or, or may be um, pointing towards some some sort of risk for the patient or for the system, uh, and then really crafting my day around addressing those issues. And if there's any time left at the end of the day, vetting new technology, um, evaluating our current processes and seeing how we can do things better, and we can get into some of those challenges and point of care a little bit later, then uh, just really developing the point of care um, 
department for our healthcare institution and the patients that we serve. And Tori, how about how about your daily life? Um, I don't want to be as vague because it really is different day to day. Uh, I feel like a lot of it is communicating with um, managers and supervisors on the floor about getting people access to our glucose meters and other remote instruments, um, making sure that we are keeping up to date with their training. And for those who don't know or are new to the lab, you for most of lab testing, you're going to need an initial training, a six-month training, and a one-year training. And so I am coordinating for over 300 users that initial six-month yearly and then annually after that, just making sure that's all happening to standards so that we can continue testing on the floor come our next survey. Uh, and I will say from what I've heard, CAP is very severe on point of care testing because we do want to safeguard that testing outside of the laboratory. Um, but so I am constantly troubleshooting with the floor about how we get those people down into the lab to do their training or how we get people on the floor to help me get those people trained. Um, uh, and, uh, and thusly comes in the extroverted aspect of this role. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so you mentioned that you coordinate, you know, training for over 300 users. Um, does each department you work in have uh, key operators that you could delegate training tasks to on your behalf? Or does the training have to come from a point of care laboratory specialist? It does not. We do allow people with four-year degrees in a related science. And that's very vague. So we we go with a bachelor's of science. Um we let we can have them train for us and we have had people do that in the past i do like to do the initial training myself because we are the educators um, in the hospital so i do want that initial education to be from me but um i i know we're probably going to talk about this a lot but there's a staffing crisis in healthcare and so a lot of people are coming into management roles and it's their first time and you ask them, you know, hey, do you have a four-year degree? Can you do all this ISAT training? And they look you in the eyes and go, I have too much. I can't take that on. So a lot of it is, is becoming me. I am responsible for most of those 300 people. And uh, yet uh, CMS is trying to uh, make the argument that uh, nurses have the capacity to do high complexity lab testing. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, firsthand example of um, how difficult that will be in terms of where they're going to find the time to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are, do you guys have some like major departments that you work with, some uh, frequent flyers? Is it most of your work done in the emergency department or where's most of your work concentrated? Yeah, um, as I touched on before, uh, you know, we perform 1.2 million glucose tests a year, but in point of care total in all of our sites, we do well over 1.5 million tests per year. And Tori touched on the fact that she has um, 400 plus people that need to be trained, point of care operators at her institution, but across our health system, we have operators within the thousands. Um, And so that's a lot of training and competency assessment to tackle. 
Um, so while point of care is ubiquitous throughout our healthcare um, system, there are some areas where it's more predominant than others. You'll see a large presence of point of care testing in critical care areas like the emergency department, um, the intensive care unit, the operating room, and the CV um, OR, cardiac cath lab, and then in some of our other specialty areas like respiratory therapy, excuse me, respiratory therapy and the mother-baby units in our hospitals. I could see those departments being uh, really, point of care testing being really valuable to um, what they do. And, you know, we're talking, you know, it enhances patient satisfaction because you're increasing your quick turnaround times and you're providing that continuity of care because you're allowing immediate counseling of the patient during a visit and, you know, hopefully avoiding escalation of treatment. Um, you know, some other things that I could think of is, uh, you know, uh, the difference between having to stick a patient for a venipuncture versus doing something as a finger stick. Um, so lots of benefits there. And I wanted to ask, you know, zoning into those departments, um, thinking about some um, uh, wins and challenges in bringing a test on board. And so specifically, I'm thinking of um, a workplace I had where we were evaluating whether to bring um, point of care troponins. And I do believe that we ended up, um, you know, this was many years ago, not going through with it because we couldn't find a good enough correlation between that point of care um, instrument and and what we had in the lab. Um, so could you kind of expand on an example like that about uh, a challenge of uh, point of care testing not being equivocal? Can can I take that one for a sec, Dean? Yeah, for sure. So point of care troponin is one of my favorite subjects. Um, and I will tell you that what we, we went to a presentation on it from Abbott, um, laboratories, and they told us that that is supposed to happen because all troponin tests are looking for different parts of the troponin protein, so they're never going to correlate. So then what happens if um, you're monitoring a patient's troponins using a point of care instrument and all of a sudden it goes down or something happens to it, you know, you just, is it as simple as, okay, well, now we're just going to start collecting a troponin for our uh, centralized instrument? Yes, and, and I would say that um, the use of troponin in point of care is more of a rule in, rule out. And it um, in the lab, a lot of assays that are not high sensitivity troponin, because those are two different topics, but just a normal troponin eye that we are running on our instrument um, we run it twice because there can be platelet interference and we want to make sure that if we're giving out a high sample, it is absolutely high. And that test is 10 to 20 minutes per run. So we're talking 20 to 40 minutes plus transport time to the lab and draw time. So the real utility of the point of care troponin is to get a troponin right away within 10 minutes. And you know, like, okay, we're dealing with a heart case. Or, and then you will repeat it in two hours, but guess what? That two hour troponin gets done in 10 minutes. 
and you can see that delta or no delta or it's negative again, and we can move that patient in or out. And so that's really the utility of it. And moving forward with high sensitivity troponin, this whole conversation is going to change. And um, we can make a case that we don't need that point of care test anymore. Um, but just to go, moving forward with this talk in general, um, that's that's my talk on troponin in ISTAT. So <laughs> I picked the, I picked the right example. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. I, I just remember again many um, examples of. Um, issues that have come up or discussions. The, the other one I'm thinking of is point of care um, PT, uh, PTs for Coumadin warfarin patients and, and um, how the two tests weren't equivocal. Again, one running on the analyzer versus running on the point of care. So it caused difficulty in patient care, depending on where they would come in. Um, you know, one maybe one was available and not the other. Um, does that happen often where um, kind of point of care uh, testing kind of is competing with centralized laboratory instrumentation? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, oftentimes that really comes down to, you know, differences in methodology and the way those analytes are measured. Uh, historically, point of care has been vastly different from the methods used within the main laboratory because it had to be quick, right? Um, you know, with newer technology, that gap is, is closing. We're seeing things like PCR being used waived in a point of care fashion. Um, but still, there's a lot of testing that is not necessarily um, in line with what's happening in the main lab. A very common example is, is something like a glucose meter. Um, and even though the variance may not be extremely large, um, we'll often get questions about, um, you know, a glucose taken on a point of care meter at the patient bedside, uh, not really matching up with what's happening um, in the main lab on their um, basic metabolic panel. Uh, a lot of that can be chalked up to pre-analytical um, error, but also just the, def the differences in the um, technology and the, the, uh, the test method. Um, so you will see that um, oftentimes in point of care testing. And, um, you know, some analytes, it's not as prevalent in as others. But to really get past that, I think it's important to realize that point of care testing has a great utility in being a screening method, for lack of a better um, term and helping and guiding decisions uh, in immediate care for the patient, or even in things like triaging that patient to an appropriate unit or getting them through the ED as, as Tori kind of pointed out in her troponin example. Uh, I just heard you mention, um, you know, a lot that discrepancy sometimes uh, or maybe often uh, can be explained by pre-analytical errors. And to me, this is kind of the, the um, fun part is uh, real life examples of maybe pre-analytical uh, non-compliance that you see either have happened in your careers as you're working mm -hmm. with various care teams um, that require for you to intervene 
train and retrain. And, um, you know, we can, I'm sure that there's many examples. So do you guys have uh, some favorite ones? And maybe, um, Tori, we can start with you. Um, I don't want to get too specific, but I got a call on a weekend because someone wanted to run a iStat cartridge that was not validated on their iStat um, to run a hemoglobin. And so I started out by saying, you cannot have those cartridges because it's not validated on that instrument. And we do not want to run a hemoglobin on that <laughs> cartridge. We, and, and this cartridge is $770 for the patient. And they're just looking for a hemoglobin. Um, and the reason for that is because on the iStat, the hemoglobin is calculated off of a measured hematocrit. So if we have any kind of anemia in the patient, that hemoglobin is not going to be accurate. And so this was a time when I had, I had to get other people involved because we needed to educate them on why we should not be using the instrument for that reason. Um, yeah, it's a quick way to get a hemoglobin and it's probably very accurate because we do have to follow cap requirements for making sure that there is accuracy in point of care testing, but it is, it's not going to benefit the patient to pay that much for an inaccurate result. Yeah, thinking about uh, the many conversations that I've had throughout the years on the phone, you know, trying to explain why a hemolyzed specimen, we cannot report it out, um, you know, sometimes can be a challenging conversation uh, with this example or any others you have. Um, do you frequently get pushback and saying, we'll just do it anyway? Sorry. Yes. And in this example, um, we did have to turn off that cartridge on their analyzer because they were doing it anyway, because they thought that they had gotten the okay to do it. It was just a huge miscommunication. Yeah. But you are bringing up hemolyzed specimens, which brings me to a very different conversation. Um, that is one of the biggest uh, areas in point of care testing that we can't control for because we're using whole blood samples a lot of the time and there is no age factor. We talked to our, the reps at Abbott and they said there will likely never be an age factor run for hemolysis. And an example of this is we have a clinic who is just looking for hem a hematocrit on their patients um, to screen for a disease that would harm them at this clinic and somehow their iStat, all of the testing got turned on, including the electrolytes on that panel. And they were getting potassiums that were critical. And now they had to have the patient go get drawn because they have all these critical results they weren't supposed to see at all. And um, they were mad at the lab because they could see these results. And it was our fault that they were getting all of these criticals. And I had to go back to them and educate them on the fact that the sample they used was hemolyzed. No one's potassium should be that high. Um, and, and that we would, you know, that should be accurate because we make sure that that cartridge is accurate with our instruments. So the lab didn't do anything wrong. It was a glitch <laughs> and, uh, um, it was important to let them know that the lab wasn't doing anything wrong. 
that it was just a faulty draw and there was some pre-analytical errors that none of these patients probably had these critical results. And it was sad that they incidentally found them, but the problem wasn't with the analyzer showing the results, it was with the draw itself. It's a great example and a great point that hemolysis can't be well controlled for in a point of care setting. Um, are there um, point of care tests then that are um, heavily influenced by by hemolysis? I mean, how do we even account account for that? Um, you know, in your example, uh, they just happened to be running a bunch of other tests, and that's how you knew that it was a hemolyzed test. But uh, for everything else, is it just that um, the degree of change in the result isn't um, as as great, or you just make sure to provide as much training education for how not to hemolyze a whole blood specimen? Like, how do you account for that? It's very much so the latter. Uh, as Tori pointed out, with point-of-care testing, almost always we're using a whole blood specimen, and so you really can't get an H factor or gauge the amount of hemolysis that there is in a sample, um, but there are a few things that you can do to try to mitigate the risk of getting hemolysis, and a lot of that comes down to the collection of the sample. Uh, for things like a capillary specimen that we, you would get from doing something like a finger poke, um, you really want to minimize excessive squeezing of the finger. Uh, you want to make sure that you get a a good um, puncture with your um, Lancet device. Uh, for something like glucose testing, you may want to wipe away that first drop of blood and collect the second drop of blood. Um, for things like blood gas testing, uh, avoiding drawing from an IV insertion is, is uh, always preferable. To, um, connecting to Tori's example, a lot of a lot of times when we see discrepant results or questionable results, it's because of things like drawing from an IV, whether it be fluid contamination from that IV or just from hemolysis from inserting that IV. So training point-of-care testing personnel uh, on that collection aspect and then the associated risks and discrepant results that they could see due to hemolysis is really the best fight or the, the most useful approach that we can use as point of care um, professionals to ensure that we're getting the most accurate results we can. And do you guys see uh, pre-analytical errors? You know, uh, we, we talked about actual specimen collection. But do you see ones come up for um, specimen handling and transporting? So, you know, something is collected, but then like left on the counter, do you kind of encounter that that side of it too? You know, I have. Um, one of my favorite examples that I experienced early on in my career um, was someone reporting that they couldn't get an INR on this patient. So I came down to the unit to observe the testing. And what they were doing was drawing a specimen. Um, and they couldn't get a result. So they took that syringe that had been sitting on the counter for a few minutes and retested it for a coagulation assay. Uh, for those listeners who do not uh, know why that might be a problem, as soon as blood leaves the body in an un anticoagulated container, it will start to coagulate. 
And so the more time that you wait from the time of collection of that specimen to when you start testing it, the more inaccurate that result is going to be. And so in essence, uh, this point of care testing personnel was trying to push a clot into a testing cartridge and get some sort of result out of it. So uh, while most instances aren't that um, extreme, they do happen. And uh, really all you can do is educate people and uh, hope they do better next time. Right. Right. Have you ever gotten to a point where um, you've had to, uh, um, you know, multiple uh, direct observations that you may have done uh, yielded, you know, this person is should not be running this test. Does that ever happen to where you have to revoke their privileges or is that that probably not common in point of care? You know, with how many point of care testing personnel we have, it it does unfortunately happen. Um and I don't like it to be a punitive process. Uh, to your point, yes, we definitely try to retrain, reteach, try to figure out if there's communication barriers, physical barriers, if there's anything we can do to assist that person in doing um, testing better. Uh, but on occasion, there are just limitations that we can't get past. And in those scenarios, it's really important for us to have good communication with that point of care testing personnel's manager or supervisor, and just discuss that the risk to reward for this person person performing testing um, just isn't there, and we should just find an alternative um, testing support for that unit. What I've also noticed is that um, when this happens, it's usually an integrity issue, like you know, we accidentally scan the wrong patient multiple times. Um, and if they're making these mistakes with point of care testing, it's a reflection of how their work ethic is in other areas. And they don't tend to stay along, around long in healthcare in general. Right, right. And definitely uh, um, good to hear, you know, for patient safety and patient care. And that really leads me into... Um, a topic that we discussed on this podcast back in September when we were doing legislative updates, um, where Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, um, advanced a proposed federal rule that would allow individuals with bachelor's degree in nursing to serve as high complexity testing personnel under CLIA without any additional um, training or experience. Um, and some, you know, some of their justification for the proposal was pointing to the widespread waived testing in point of care setting that's performed by nurses. And um, clearly, you know, um, this podcast being a representative of ASCLS, we definitely came back with a very strong statement opposing it. But you two have a very unique perspective because you get to interact with nursing staff every single day. Um, what does this federal rule moving forward, what what comes up for you? What thoughts as, as we continue down this path? So with the struggles we've seen in staffing labs, uh, we're really looking for ways that we can change lab testing to best serve our patients. And that is the ultimate goal 
from both lab and nursing and all other allied healthcare professionals. Um, I still don't think that it's a great idea, um, but maybe a, a question I have for you, Galena, do you really think the nurses wanna be performing high complexity testing? <laughs> All right. So instantly I thought, no, right? Because your examples are where everyone is experiencing staff shortages. Um, but I will say I tend to peruse the forums very frequently of various um, healthcare um, uh, forums. And one of them was specifically addressing this. And there were several nurses that were actually responding that they're super interested because they are so burnt out post-COVID pandemic um, and with the continual staffing shortages that they they say, I will take the pay cut, get me out of here. I still want to be practicing in medicine. And um, that actually broke my heart to hear, right? Because I don't think a nurse ever goes into school uh, wanting to work in the lab, but that's the sense of desperation that some of them are feeling that they're like, just get me out, get me out of here. I would say that, say that that's likely an exception, um, not the rule, especially with your examples. You know, they're already stretched so thin that when you ask them to, you know, help as key operators or retraining or competencies, even that is really tough for them. So, gosh, you know, I don't I think that there's going to need to be a lot um more work around this pro proposition. And I think that it needs to come off less um, like it's lab versus nursing and instead have a collaborative solution that services patients best, which again comes back to this is what you two do. Um, another point of care specialist around uh, the world, of course. But you, you guys, the, the solution is starting with this role. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. To, to more directly answer your question, though, I, I do not think it is a good idea for nurses or any other allied healthcare professional who's non-lab to be performing high complexity tests without adequate training and support. Um, back to the shortage in staffing, I do think that really is going to drive a unique relationship between lab and non-lab professionals in molding the way that lab works, in really being innovative and changing the way we provide service because we may not have the people or the workforce that we need, so we're going to have to tap into other departments, newer technology, and really um, figure out new ways to serve our patients. And that really is gonna, it's gonna be very important for lab to play the leading role in that, in driving that, if we want to continue to provide quality lab results. And that's really gonna give lab a face in healthcare. Tori, how about you? Uh, opinion on the CMS ruling um i my opinion is that we went to school to learn what we were doing in the laboratory and not just how to do it but what is going on in our instrumentation and um, the science behind all of the lab testing so i think testing in a nurse realm or a non-lab realm 
is good if there is the education about what is going on in those specific tests, but high complexity testing is something you have to go to school for. You have to know what's going on inside of the instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, otherwise you're introducing so so much potential risk for diagnostic error. Um, I actually just, as you were talking, started to think about what if another organization uh, on, what, what if we flip the script and they said, you laboratorians now are qualified to insert IVs and administer drugs and uh, do direct patient care uh, testing. I feel like personally, I would <laughs> have a panic attack considering I pretty much had one the moment in school we found out we actually had to perform blood collection. I was like, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not what I thought this was, you know? Um, so I think that's a, that's a funny thought that I, I don't know that many laboratorians would be jumping out at the, at the front lines of um, what uh, so many wonderful nurses do. You know, I live with a nurse in, in the emergency department and um, I would, I would not want to step in those shoes. Um, you know, I went to school for this. <laughs> Um, so maybe to wrap it up, um, in a positive manner, right, we talked about the challenges and the examples of, um, point of care testing needing some correction. Um, do you guys have examples of wins, um, that you've been a part of, whether projects or corrections, um, uh, you know, for improving patient care? And really where I want to lead these examples into is, um, what ideas you might give others, other labs that are struggling with these issues in improving the relationship between lab and other care teams when it comes to lab testing? That's a great question. I I don't know if this is really going to hit on the aspect of, of things that other labs can take away, but one of the most interesting projects that I've ever been involved in was developing um, under the direction of my my old boss Pedro Castaneda. Big shout out to him and Cherie Humphreys who who covered almost all the technical aspect of this setup. Um, but in partnership with them, we um, stood up an Ebola Ebola containment lab, um, which relied extremely heavily on point of care testing methodologies. And I thought that was just an extremely rewarding process to to be a part of a team that was tackling something so new to Minnesota and the country and to be able to use my point of care um, training and expertise to really drive the decisions and the the strategies for um, testing suspect patients with Ebola. Um, And so I thought that was a huge win for point of care. And um, something I talked about earlier is giving giving lab a face. Um, That was definitely an opportunity where I was meeting with senior leaderships from the hospital and and, uh, connecting with them face-to-face and really showing uh, how important lab is, and we all know that as as lab professionals, but letting other people know how important we are in the patient care process. My win is not as cool as Dean's win, Um, but when I walked into this role a year and a couple months ago, 
there there was not a lot of integrity and point of care. There was a lot going on that we did not have the time to correct. And one of those things was that we were misidentifying patients on the floor for testing um, to the point where we ran a glucose meter on someone who was no longer alive. And so at that point, um, all of the big leaders in the hospital were looking at lab, like, what do we do? How do we change this? And there was other stuff going on, but I will keep that to myself. Um, so we sat down, me and Dean, and we decided that we were going to remove the ability to type in an MRN number, and that's a medical record number, um, from our glucose meters. And we were going to now require that they scan a barcode of some sort. And it seems like an easy fix, but we have people faint on the floor as family members. We have um, people come in without any identification in our emergency room. And if those people need to be checked for glucoses for hypoglycemia protocols, and we can't check them, um, that's a patient safety concern and something we had to address with our new protocol. So we made a dummy MRN number for those patients. And uh, in those cases, they would send me that a sheet which had their real MRN number once they had that information and I would move those results into their chart afterwards but they had that result right in hand right away and we went from 20 plus errors a month to zero we have no errors I am not chasing after people I'm not writing um, up reports on people anymore we are a hundred percent of the time identifying a patient when we need to and getting that result into their charts. So what a fantastic gradient of examples and, and definitely no, no less valuable uh, than setting up an Ebola lab, although definitely different sides of the spectrum about the work effort. And I'm sure um, there was a lot of um, expenses involved setting up an Ebola lab versus this is here's a, a rapid improvement that we can implement um, to improve patient safety. So thank you both um, for those great examples. Um, any advice for current laboratorians that may, uh, that would um, improve their relationship with nurses? Again, um, thinking about how many conversations for correction and explanation that you guys have to do in your role, um, how can we better explain ourselves? How can we be more empathetic um, and understanding each other? Any kind of last thoughts for a laboratorian that may currently be in the lab listening to this and huffing and puffing at a recent conversation they had with a nurse um, that really challenged them about uh, laboratory testing? Yes, absolutely. And, and to all you who are listening, I've been there, done that. I can sympathize with you 100%. One of the most useful skills that I've learned to develop over my career in point of care is just being an effective communicator. And to be an effective communicator, you need to have a high level of self-awareness. And you also need to have a certain level of empathy. 
And to build those skills, you really just need to be present. You need to have face-to-face -face contact with these people. You need to develop a relationship with them. Uh, lab folk and nursing folk don't speak the same language. And that's just the way that it is. It benefits each to their own in, in ways that help them achieve the goals that they need to achieve. But at the end of the day, as I said earlier, we're, we're looking out for our patients and we're trying to provide the best patient care that we can. And so if you can't have face-to-face -face contact with the nurses, like we get to have in point of care where we can do rounding and meet with them, just going into any conversation and understanding that you're both working towards the same thing and you're both going through the same challenges. We're all short-staffed, we're all extremely busy, and we're all, you know, just trying to get to lunch or to our break and then back to the bench to keep on doing our work. If you go into conversations with the mentality um, that you're both just doing the best you can and keeping an open mind and being aware of your you know, your emotions and, and how you're presenting yourself, it, it's really going to lead to improving relationships and doing an, a successful career as a lab scientist. My biggest takeaway from this last year in point of care is remembering that everyone comes to work with no intention to do harm with the intention to do their best. And then throughout the day, you just get really bogged down. And But no one is making mistakes because they want to hurt the patient. And I think if you look, if you reverse this podcast and go back to any of our examples, it was always an education element. It was never someone was doing something wrong and they were harming the patient on purpose. It was they did not know. And that's where we come in to be the educator in the hospital about laboratory testing. What a fantastic summary of your role um, and a very wholesome one too. Yeah, it has its challenges and um, difficult conversations, but A, it's all for, for patient care and B, it's uh, to educate, not necessarily reprimand uh, uh, because like you said, uh, no one has truly ill intentions. Um, yeah. Um, Dean, Tori, thank you so much for sharing your daily stories um, that you see in your point of care setting and truly being the face of the laboratory um, daily. Um, I hope um, we've piqued uh, the interest of someone um, listening to this pod podcast uh, to seek out a role like this in the future, um, appreciating the ups, the downs, the challenges, rewards that may come with this field. Um, that's it for our episode of Off the Bench Podcast um, and see you all next time. Thank you, Galena. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs>